Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. In today's episode, Mike Moynihan's origin story. First, thanks sponsors, Tops, Panini, and Upper Deck. Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, CompC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. Mike Moynihan at Baseball Collector on YouTube and the Golden Age of Cardboard. So enjoyed hearing his story. Hope you do too. Here it is. Welcome, Mike Moynihan, Baseball Collector, your origin story. I've heard some of it because I've watched not all because you're, you're a pretty prolific YouTuber. But how you got started, your kid involvement, if there was any hiatus, and then you jumped in on YouTube ahead of a lot of people and have accumulated a pretty good library there. And I'm uh, in the podcast world, and, and you are too. But uh, tell us how all that got started. And again, welcome to the show, Mike. Yeah, thanks, uh, Dr. Becker, for having me. It's an honor, obviously. Like a lot of people, I started collecting as a kid. I was eight years old, early 80s, and just started buying sports cards, or mainly baseball cards. I did have a little football and stuff, but it was mostly baseball. And it's just because I loved the game. The Rangers were terrible here, local team, but I didn't care. I fell in love with guys like Buddy Bell and Al Oliver and Jim Sundberg. Those were my heroes as a kid current players that I could watch and, you know, baseball cards was just always something I did. Unlike most people in the 40 years I've been doing it, I, I never stopped. I never had that stop in high school, stop in college. Now, did I collect less? Of course, because I was a broke college student or whatever. I didn't have the funds to be able to continue the hobby in ways that when mom and dad were buying the cards, it was a little bit different. When I was on my own, there was less being bought, but I never stopped. And always moved my collection with me as I moved around. And it was always a, a huge thing that I loved. As I got older into adulthood, having starting a career, starting a family, getting married, having kids, those things, like most of us, again, money was tight. So the, the purchases were careful, but I would always go to shops and I would always love to go to shows every once in a while and those kinds of things. And then as you get older, like I'm 47 now, so your disposable income hopefully gets a little bit it changes over time. And I've had the ability to buy cards that I genuinely never thought I would ever own as a kid that were just complete pipe dreams. That's how I've gotten to where I am now. Uh, just still love the hobby. The same as like a little kid. It's the same mentality, ironically. Were you an immediate adoptee of grading when PSA came out? Because I know no, PSA and, predated and, BGS by yeah. a number of years, and you're pretty much a solid PSA guy. How quick were you to jump on that bandwagon? Because Originally, I thought it was a total scam. I thought it was like a total money by whatever company, whether it was Beckett or SGC or PSA. I thought it was a joke. Then I had this epiphany. I had this project that I was working on, the 300 Great Cards by Mike Payne. And I, know wow. I, and I loved that project. I love that idea. Now, did I agree with every card Mike put in there? No, but who cares? It's not the point. It, it's, I didn't either right. to make that public, <laughs> right. but, but I was violently opposed. It's just, it's personal preference. For sure. I still loved all of it. And I said, I'm going to do this project. I'm going to try to get every card that's in this book. At least I started out going, okay, I'm going to do 1960 to now. Cause I thought, okay, that's at least affordable. And I started getting some of these cards raw. This is 2009, 2010. I'm thinking, I've been doing this a long time, even at that point. There's a lot of great fakes out there. I was worried as I started getting into some higher end mantle stuff and maze and Clemente rookies and 
Nolan Ryan's. I'm like, I've been duped before. Anybody that's been in the hobby any amount of time has been duped at some point. And those are great lessons, but it's only a mistake if you don't learn from it. And my mistakes I had learned from and went, I don't want to go down that road again. Cause now we're talking about a little bit more serious money here that I would be wasting if I bought something fraudulent. So to me, PSA was the means to authenticity. It's still someone's opinion, but at least it's better than just my opinion of is a card real or not. So I started buying PSA cards for that project. I started falling in love with the way they look and they protect the card and all these wonderful things that slabbing brings, no matter who the slabbing company is, they all bring these same characteristics to a card. No, I was not an early adopter, but once I adopted, I became a, a true believer and, and totally jumped in to that. And PSA just became, I, I am so OCD, like most collectors, everything for me had to be the same. Like I just, the idea of having a multi-slab collection didn't appeal to me whatsoever as that OCD kind of guy. So PSA was it. That's where I made my bed. The problem is, and people don't realize this, is that it's not just 300 great cards, but great cards are what are counterfeited. <laughs> they don't right. go around counterfeiting crummy cards. They do the best ones. And, and some of the best ones are difficult to, to detect from the naked eye. I think the pros, the graders can detect them. I won't say a thousand times out of a thousand, but maybe 999. It's a very rare thing that's going to get by PSA or BGS or SGC. So I don't think that's happening. But do you have any cards in your collection that are just graded authentic? Or are you basically looking for a minimum numerical grade, especially with some of these really tough cards? I have no cards in my collection that are just authentic. I'm not opposed to that whatsoever. Uh, I will admit freely that I'm an addict to the set registry. And unfortunately, as a set registry guy, if you don't have a numerical grade, it really doesn't count. That's probably really stupid to, to think that way. I'm fully admitting that. But the so like maybe my 52 mantle that I might get someday, I might have to settle for an authentic. I, I just don't know. I'm not opposed to it. I just don't at this point have those. That's all. It depends on what your objective is, because I've seen some authentic mantles that look better than sixes. Sure. Now that Good means point. they probably were trimmed. So they have perfect centering now, just a little narrow. Sure. Uh, and it could be microscopically narrower, but still detectable. Okay. When did you jump into the, the YouTube situation? It seemed like you were early on that. Yeah. Well, I started a YouTube profile is probably the best word. I wouldn't call it an account maybe to watch. I don't know that. I think a channel is something that where you're putting content yeah. out. I, yeah, okay. I had a YouTube username essentially. And I was just consuming content, just watching videos. And after a couple of years of that, ironically, when I started, the reason I have baseball collector is because it seemed the most appropriate name for what I did. And I did it so early on that no one, that's such a generic name Absolutely. that, hey, it was available. It's like whenever you, you can't get your name now, if you wanted to use your name as your email address, it's used by 10 other people, but the early adopters, so to speak, can, anyway, that's the name came from just, hey, I, I collect baseball stuff. And I didn't want to be, it's not just cards. I have pictures and bobbleheads and autographed baseball, you name it, right? I'm a baseball guy, mainly. So watching a couple of years, I turned to, hey, you know what? I got some pretty cool stuff and maybe I could show it and people might find that interesting. My early videos are, are horrible in terms of production quality slash content. I'm fumbling and all of that kind of stuff. And you're just like anything else, the more you do it better and improve in the way you do things. And it's gotten to the point now where I literally don't have show notes or I just do a video. I'm very off the cuff. I think that kind of sincerity reality is part of what people like about watching me. 
Um, I, I think so. they do. But I noticed uh, over the years, I've seen some of your stuff and it just, I like it. I, I don't know that we're kindred spirits more than 99%, but we both love baseball and love cards. It just seems like when somebody doesn't like your video, because almost everybody likes it, but then a few people are thumbs down. They dislike it. I'm trying to think, what's going on? I know you're opinionated at times, but I, I guess I'm hoping for a more perfect world where people are appreciating people that are getting out there and doing content that's trying to be helpful. Yeah, there's who are, the, who are these naysayers? <laughs> I've had plenty over the years. I will tell you that it probably stems a lot from me being abrasive or, or braces, maybe not the right word, certainly brash, cocky. Maybe there's a lot of people that just, that don't know me that might see a video and just jump to a conclusion about the kind of person that I am overall. And I, that's certainly unfair. I can't control that. When I do silly things, I try to come back and apologize later down the road, things that people really find a problem with. But at the end of the day, I think I've learned this is another wisdom thing. Look, I'm going to be myself. And either if you don't like it, you can change the channel. You certainly don't have to watch the video, but I'll literally have, let's say a video is 10 minutes long and it posts and it's live two minutes into the video. I'll have two or three thumbs down. Nobody's even watched the video. It's literally just someone coming on. Oh, Mike posted a video. Bingo. Thumbs down. And I don't care anymore. I used to care very much. I took it very personally. What's wrong with these people? What am I doing wrong that they don't enjoy? Because I do like to be liked. I think most people, I'm just one of those guys that I, I want people to like what I do. And the end of the day, I just got, you can't please everybody move on. Your life's too short. Forget about it. For the digital generation, the worst thing is not to be disliked. It's to be, it's right. not to have a, vo a voice, not to be noticed. So you're being noticed, Mike. So take that as a compliment. <laughs> a good thing. Yeah. I'd rather take a thumbs down than I guess. At least uh, they watched it for two minutes. Yeah. Now, when I do my episodes, I know not every episode's for everybody, but there ought to be something for everybody that likes collecting somewhere in there. And if they iterate toward finding content that they like, I've got no problem. There's some amazing podcasts and YouTubers out there. You came to the dinner we had last month, and that was interesting to see the different personalities. For sure. Like I said, I think if they're thumbs downing you, they're disliking you, it might be stylistic which I, I don't get that either. But you, know, you can see many of the YouTube people have a certain style, a persona that they bring to it. And it's part of their presentation. Again, that's a good thing. They want to see somebody involved and really caring about the category and not reading from a script. And I, I'd love them just to write a comment. I hate you because of this, whatever. Or I thumbs down this video because of X, Y, Z. At least that would be some feedback, some constructive feedback. Yeah. The way YouTube works, you get a lot of comments from people. Hey, thanks for sharing or loved what you said about this or asking questions. And that's great interactivity, but on the negative side of it, there's no general feedback, which is well, even on the positive side of non-specific praise or criticism is you know, where, where do you go with that? I guess if it's non-specific praise, you just, so that's a ratification and just keep doing what I'm, but if you're terrible, you stink. You know, what part of me stinks? You know? <laughs> it's not, it's not true, but what do you do? Change everything. Really what they're saying is quit, <laughs> give it up, which seems pretty harsh. Yeah. Nobody's told me to do that, but they do tell me to do less of this and more of this. And I can take that and receive that. Sure. I know you're doing that too. What's the deal on Bench Clear Media? Yeah. So Bench Clear Media is a conglomeration of me, Tyler Wilson, who's Breaker Culture, Jeff Hofer, Pat Geek. It was an idea to build a sports card network with multiple genres being represented within the hobby and, and have a kind of one-stop shop for a consumer. Maybe it's someone that's coming into the hobby and doesn't know a lot of informative things about different aspects of the hobby on one channel. That was the genesis idea of that 
it had been great. The best part about being a part of BenchClear is the people that I've gotten to know even better, Ty and Jeff, and just the collaborative effort is a lot more joyful. Because at that point, when I joined BenchClear, when BenchClear started a little over a year ago, I'd been doing videos for seven years. So been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Let me try something different. I can sit here and show vintage cards all day long and talk about them. Let's do something new and exciting and try something different. If it fails miserably, fine. At least we tried. And it's been very successful in terms of just, if you just look at metrics, but it's been more successful just in the fact that I've gotten to know Ty a lot better and, and interact with other people within the hobby that I never would have gotten to probably otherwise. Or And because Ty knows a lot of people, I know a lot of people, I'm more community guy, he's more hobby guy. And so we were able to meld both of our interests, both of our connections, and I think create something pretty fun.